Have people of color and migrant workers been traditionally marginalized within the labor movement? How important is it for the labor movement to build bonds of solidarity with workers internationally, and how does that feed into support for racialized workers? Why is it important to incorporate class analysis into anti-racism activism? How are splits within the fork force of the Northeast United States deliberately fostered by industry leaders, and why? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we follow up on last week's episode commemorating the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike with an examination of the labor movement noting the impacts of systemic racism on working class solidarity. For the bulk of the show, we will get opinions from a migrant justice activist, Chris Ramsarup, and a Winnipeg based activist, Louis Eiffel, about the institutional obstacles facing migrants and workers of color in Canada. Then, in the final part of the program, Abiyomi Azakiwe of Pan African Newswire shares some of the history of the splitting of the labor force along racial lines as they expressed themselves in the Northeast United States, including his hometown of Detroit and his prescription for a successful strategy of attaining both racial equality and worker rights. On this week's program, Marginalizing Migrants and People of Color Within the Labor Movement, Dialogues on Race and Class. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 24th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The U.S. has alleged that UNRWA must be dismantled or reformed. In particular, the U.S. has taken issue with how UNRWA defines and registers refugees, alleging that it's Organizational procedures are contrary to international refugee law and UNHCR regulations. In particular, the U.S. wants A, to redefine Palestine refugees, i.e. remove the descendants of original Palestine refugees from the UNRWA register, as well as those who have obtained the nationality of a host country, example, Jordanian, and B, to dismantle UNRWA and shift responsibility for Palestine refugees to UNHCR. The strategic discursive attacks on UNRWA are no more different from the strategic discursive attacks on, say, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. Both are meant to delegitimize Palestinian nationalism and entrench Jewish nationalism in Palestine and lead to policies by and in the U.S., that do just that. That comes from the article, Defunding UNRWA, Trump's Legal Sleight of Hand Against Palestine, by Rima Najjar, posted May 23rd. The militants are opposed to President Assad, 
but after the withdrawal of the Turkish troops, Damascus will be able to establish a dialogue with FSA, as it has happened in southern Syria. There, the Syrian government managed to persuade the militants to lay down weapons and then amnestied them. At the same time, we should not forget about the fate of Kurds. If the north of Syria remains under Turkish control, thousands of locals will become refugees and can't get back to their homes, fearing constant repression by the Turkish authorities. According to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, more than 100,000 people have already left the region before the Turkish invasion. That comes from the article, Turkish Army Pullout Will Bring Peace to Northern Syria? By Firas Samuri, posted May 23rd. For now, it suffices to say that the UNOPCW engineering report is completely different from the UNOPCW report on Khan Shikun, which is distinguished by numerous claims about explosive effects that could only have been made by technically illiterate individuals. In very sharp contrast, the voices that come through the engineering report are those of highly knowledgeable and sophisticated experts. A second issue that is raised by the character of the OPCW engineering report on Duma is that it is entirely unmentioned in the report that went to the UN Security Council. This omission is very serious, as the findings of that report are critical to the process of determining attribution. There's absolutely no reason to justify the omission of the engineering report in the OPCW account to the UN Security Council as its policy implications are of extreme importance. That comes from the article, Newly Revealed Documents Show Syrian Chemical Attacks Were Staged, by Dr. Theodore Postel, posted May 22nd, originally published at the Institute for Public Accuracy. Tuesday, the 21st of May 2019, is the International Day of Action Against Chevron, during which 260 civil society organizations representing an estimated 280 million people have come together to express their outrage at the impunity the American oil giant continues to enjoy and to voice their solidarity with the indigenous communities affected by Chevron's toxic environmental practices. Chevron not only ignores a ruling by the Ecuadorian Supreme Court ordering it to clean up the toxic mess Texaco left behind in the Amazon that is still killing and poisoning people and to compensate the victims, it also attacks those who defend the victims with shock and awe lawfare, said Nick Minen, environmental and economic justice policy officer at the European Environmental Bureau. Indigenous peoples affected by decades of leaks and dumping in the Amazon from the Lago Agrio oil installation in Ecuador have been seeking justice and compensation from Texaco, the field's then operator, since 1993. Evidence gathered during the investigation shows that Texaco dumped some 68 billion liters of toxic wastewater and hundreds of thousands of barrels of crude oil into the rainforest during its operations in northeast Ecuador. We will fight this until hell freezes over and then fight it out on the ice, a company spokesperson said at the time the litigation was first brought, and the oil giant has stayed true to its word. That comes from the article Oiling the Wheels of Injustice, Indigenous Communities in the Amazon by Khaled Diab, posted May 23rd, originally published at META. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. As mentioned on last week's episode of the Global Research News Hour, the labor movement worldwide experienced a resurgence of power in the years following the First World War to the point of threatening the ruling classes and capitalism itself. Over the course of the last century, we've seen gains, for example, in working conditions and maximum hours of work and the right to collective bargaining. Unfortunately, not all members of the working or salaried class have shared in those benefits. In May of 2018, the Canadian Council for Refugees documented the vulnerability of migrant workers to abuse and exploitation, mentioning their dependence on a single employer and a consequent hesitation about asserting their rights, which could result in losing their jobs. In Canada, people of colour continue to confront racial profiling, and there continues to be a sizable wage gap between racialized and other workers. The historical background of these realities are linked to the ways in which Canada and the United States established themselves as capitalist powerhouses in the first place. People of color were utilized as slaves and indentured servants and helped clear the path for creating these nations. The labor movement has not always been useful in uplifting these communities from deprivation. Can these workers of color achieve gains through conventional union organizing? And if not, what options are at their disposal? To address these questions of race and worker autonomy, the Global Research News Hour got hold of two guests who have spent considerable time engulfed in these issues. One was a presenter at the recent 1919 Winnipeg General Strike Conference held at the University of Winnipeg in early May. The other was an audience member who brought considerable historical knowledge and experience to a discussion about building an inclusive labor movement. The following conversation was convened in the CKUW studio on May 11th, 2019. This is Michael Welch for the Global Research News Hour. I'm uh, joined by uh, two uh, fellow workers <laughs> who've uh, just been uh, very much uh, involved with this uh, 1919 strike conference. I mean, one of them is uh, who's presented at one of the panels. His name is. Chris Ramsarup, who is uh, with the Justice for Migrant Workers, Toronto. Hi, how are you? Good. And also joining us uh, from Winnipeg, a former program coordinator with Workers of Color Support Network. So thanks for joining us, Louis Eiffel. Eiffel, Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, um, one of the things that uh, I I really wanted to to discuss with you both is, uh, you know, in in the context of this uh, centenary, it, it strikes me, at least from my, you know, casual uh, understandings of the, the, the 1919 strike, the, the extent to which uh, much of what we're hearing, even from labor activists, has been, shall we say, well, literally whitewashed. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the, there's a whole component to uh, the labor movement that uh, where, where you know, workers of color have been uh, an extremely important component uh, I mean, it, it, it even struck me that, uh, you know, hearing from one of the presenters that when they had the pictures of the 1919 strike uh, and showing, you know, all the participants, the people of color were left out of the frame. 
So that's, uh, I, I think that's, uh, you know, something that I, I want to, you know, gain your insights into that whole reality. Um, now, when you were presenting, Chris, uh, I, I, you know, you, you given some you know, presentation, you, you raised the, the Westray disaster. And I, I wanted to give you a chance because you're, you're representing, you know, you're speaking uh, about the, the plight of, of temporary foreign workers as sort of like the uh, part of that invisible element. So could, could you maybe give us a, a little bit of more insight from, from your vantage point about some of that missing history that, we're, that, that really needs to, to be better incorporated into our overall insights? I want to try to answer that threefold. Uh, first, I want to look at w- racialized, particularly um, African-Canadian, um, but also Chinese and other East Asian communities, uh, what they did to organize. And one, um, and being here in this space is to challenge, to provoke, and to take space to bring up issues about racialized, particularly in this case, immigrant and migrant rights, and to ensure that those voices, um, the stories that we tell, are not forgotten. So that's a contemporary period. Um, and what I mean by this is to say that migrant workers are vulnerable because of political, economic, and immigration situations, right? We tie workers to a particular employer. What's falsely said is that migrant workers are simply vulnerable uh, just because they don't know their rights, which implies if they knew their rights uh, without understanding the larger immigration restrictions, that everything would be okay. This is a fallacy. This is absolutely not true. So it's about changing the political, the economic, the social structures that deny migrant workers mobility and which creates vulnerability. But at the same time, it's also seeing how workers are trying to challenge, how workers have agency, how workers are engaging in wildcat strikes, or they're trying to flee exploitative conditions. So part of my job as an activist, um, and as I would say as a storyteller, having the space here to try to tell these stories, is to show that workers are, are trying to resist. And workers do organize, not in the traditional sense. And we have to tell those stories. That has to be part of what we're doing um, in quote-unquote mainstream labor history, but also creating the alternative venues. A few minutes ago, we talked about the, the, uh, the, 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 the movements of African-Canadians or East Asian or South Asian um, organizers to develop their own unions. Now, Louis and I had a really important uh, dinner last night where we talked about uh, his activism and how, um, as a young worker... Um, how he was denied different jobs and he ended up working um, for the trains for a little while, right? And what workers there, what, what, you know, one of the lessons that we learned is that the African-Canadian, the Caribbean workers that undertook this railroad system said, look, if the white unions don't want us, then we're going to form our own unions. And so one is about integrating, pushing mainstream labor, but also creating spaces for ourselves, right? And I think that's a dual, and it's a lot of difficult work, but that's a dual um, objective, the dual pressure that we have to do, right, to undertake that these voices are heard. Yes. Louis, I want to bring you into the conversation, because mm-hmm, when mm-hmm, you, 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 you raised a question, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm, to put a question to the, mm-hmm, the panel yesterday about the, mm-hmm, uh, you know, that, that context of the 1919 strike mm-hmm, and, and what was happening in Africa during the, uh, mm-hmm, th- those critical years from 14, 1914 to mm-hmm, 1917. And, of course, you know, going back further, I mean, mm-hmm, when we talk about that, uh, the, the black uh, you know, mm-hmm, resistance... The Haitian, the Haitian uh, revolt, the first mm-hmm. major slave, well, the first mm-hmm. 
slave revolt of its, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's, you know, we were looking at 1804 to 205 years ago. And, you know, the, these struggles, slaves are workers, right. uh, they, that gets left out. I mean, yeah. maybe just give us the, you, your, your, your insights, you know, relating to that as they relate to today's right. struggles. Yeah, I doubted a little, afterwards I doubted a little bit on what uh, Chris just said sure, a sure. while ago there. Um, but yeah, to me, um, I try to look at it from a kind of long historical kind of a perspective, um, which, as a result of which, I feel that the 1919 strike could be um, could be seen as a very positive move forward for working people. You know, um, because so when I look at it in a long historical sense, as I mentioned, as I mentioned yesterday, um, the the World War, the First World War, had a lot to do with the division of Africa. Um, so these European nations met at a Berlin conference where in 1880, where they decided to divide the continent among themselves. And uh, what Germany got as their part, they were very upset about, um, which resulted in that, that world war, you know, which actually happened. You know. um, what I found interesting from my research on it is that you know, the, the, the Second International, which was the body of workers at that time in Europe, they had taken two resolutions um, in 1908 and 1912, that when they saw that there was a development towards war, that they would not participate in the war, you know. And lo and behold, when 1914 came, they ended up getting in the war, you know, and, and just fighting as soldiers would do, you know, until the Russian workers actually seized power in their workplaces, and which... My, from my understanding of the historical process, that became very threatening to all of Europe, and they were because they realized that workers from these other countries could just follow what the Russian workers did, and by doing that, they decided to put an end to this war. You know, mm-hmm. so somehow to me, what I find very significant is that when the Russian workers took control, they took control from their workplaces. To me, they were trying now to see if the, their governments could be run directly from the workplaces, what we call direct democracy, instead of what obtained prior to that, the representative democracy, which actually came in place during the time of the Puritan Revolution between 1643 and 1649. You know, mm. And I found it interesting that between 1643 and 1649, when that revolution did take place against the, you might say, the royal families of Europe, you know, um, the revolutionaries at that time, they were able to design this, you know, this kind of uh, way of us electing different representatives from the different writings in which we lived. They were able to design that. But immediately after the design was put in place, it disappeared, you know. It, they weren't able to keep it up. It disappeared, and it reappeared for the first time in the French Revolution of 1789, you know. So what I find, that's more than 100 and maybe 50 years after something is designed and when it appears. So what I find interesting about the 1917 movement by the Russian workers is that, you know, um, society has a sense of what is likely to happen. It may not happen as immediately or it may happen even much more immediately. 
um, than the period of time from which it took for representative democracy to actually be put in place after the Puritan Revolution, you know. Mm. So I'm thinking that workers today should be extremely optimistic because we have the experience of putting a format in place which eventually came to being, you know, some years after. But now, because we know of that historical process, it could actually be speeded up because we know for sure directly what we're trying to get, workers direct control of the political system from their workplaces. That, that's my way of looking at it, you know. And so, so that's what 1919 represents yeah. to me, you know. <laughs> um, interesting. Now, interestingly, with respect to um, what Chris said earlier on about the, um, the black workers, you know, and I, I have learned that many of the black workers in Canada, and Manitoba in particularly, they were working on the trains. In fact, my personal experience when I came here in 1969, that's the only place I could have actually got a job, on the trains. But interestingly, um, during the time of a 1919 strike, um, they had to form their own organization, the, the, um, the Order of Sleeping Car Porters. They had to form that organization in order to sort of meet and try to represent themselves because the Canadian Brotherhood of Railway Transport, they were the actual unions which, you know, which porters were members, but only white porters. They actually had a constitutional uh, measure that black porters could not be their members, you know, and that's just around the time of the 1919 strike, you know. But yet what I learned is that many black porters still participated in the strike, you know, um, I guess basically because they understood the criticality of that strike to, to all other workers, you know. And uh, at the end of it, many of, the, many of them, they lost their jobs, but they were prepared to come out there and be with their brothers and sisters, despite the fact that they were not recognized as, uh, as having the right to be in a union which should be representing them. Mm. So that I find quite, quite interesting. Yes, you know? and of course one of the important mm. aspects with, mm. with the regard to the Russian Revolution and mm. uh, the, the communism was the importance of not just protecting workers, but all of those who were exploited mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. oppressed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, that whole you know, instinct of, of outreach. Mm -hmm. So what, what then, when, you, when we look at the world today and, and we see labor organizing, there should be a, you know, solidarity internationally. Mm -hmm. there, there's a very interesting racial component to what's happening in Venezuela, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but I, I, I mean, on the left, I'm not hearing a lot of that so far, you know, the, the, the extent to which, uh, you know, uh, Chavez uh, revolution was, uh, you know, that those bonds of solidarity with uh, the people of color was uh, definitely an, an important component. So uh, maybe you could, you know, address that component then where, where we're seeing the, uh, the, the international dimension of, of, of labor organizing and how that feeds into efforts to to uh, build a you know worker collectives within within Canada and uh, you know you know the, the people that you work with uh, with the migrant justice. So I want to start off uh, before getting to the question about the border. And um, in Canada, we have uh, criminalized and we have uh, securitized. I believe is the proper word our border, right? Mm -hmm. And why this is critical is how we criminalize and consider uh, personas non gratas, all of these migrants who are crossing our border. 
And uh, there are people from the global south, particularly Central and South America, from Haiti. Um, what's never discussed, um, and I would say in many labor circles and community circles and the larger political uh, conversation, is a relationship between Canada and the global south. And what, for instance, we've been doing in Haiti, what we've done historically in the Caribbean, our notions and our, our form of colonialism um, ha- is a There's a direct role. relationship mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Canadian colonialism in the global south mm-hmm. and the migrant mm-hmm. crisis. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and whereas the United States, uh, you know, through the Monroe doctrine would uh, implicitly look at militarized options. Canada would be positioned as quote-unquote humanitarian or international aid or democracy, democracy in quotations, uh, projects uh, to try to look at overthrowing countries like Venezuela, but really trying to reinforce uh, the capitalist uh, powers that operate in different countries. So Canada has a significant role to play, as does the United States. Um, You know, many people would argue that Canada is a junior partner. I disagree. I think Canada is central to this um, and to this project about uh, imperialism and colonialism. And I think that helps me in understanding why people are migrating. It's not just simply you're coming to Canada to steal jobs, but we're actually stealing and plundering their societies uh, by taking their wealth, taking away their, uh, their, 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 their national interests, uh, their community interests. Uh, cultural imperialism is also critically important. And, you know, places like like Haiti, I want to position myself. I'm not an expert in Haiti or Dominic or Caribbean. But once disasters happen, you first and foremost are Canadian humanitarian organizations and Canadian government interests or allied interests that are engaging in public-private partnerships, which is hurting the economy, hurting workers, and putting the hands in the rich and not and taking away from, from the community. And mm-hmm. agriculture is important for that. So for me, I think that's what that... Uh, the colonial, the imperial conversation is not happening in labor circles. Mm. Uh, we may look at it as a paternalistic. So we could consider, for instance, looking at the conditions of workers or people in Jamaica. And we want to take a charity approach without understanding the legacy of slavery, uh, the, the political and economic connect- connections through our banks, mm-hmm. tourism industry, and how that disfigures the society of the Caribbean. So I think that's what is missing from our work. And this is what we should be trying to consider and, and, and to engage in. Yeah, um, and it's just, also, of course, important to point out that with Cuba and the Cuban Revolution, it wasn't it wasn't uh, restricted to what was happening in Cuba. They were very active in resistance struggles in Africa and then throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't mind um, referring to Cuba, not sorry, not Cuba, sorry, but Haiti, as you know, as Chris just uh, made mention of, because interestingly, I mean, Haiti was very much one of the colonies owned by France historically. You know, it in fact, Haiti was their most prosperous colony. There was something like more than 60-something percent of the trading which was done by France on continental Europe was of products created by Haiti. It was the wealthiest, wealthiest colony in the world at the time. And obviously that had a lot to do with the efforts on the part of other European countries historically to get control of Haiti. Um, but when the Haitian Revolution started, when it mobilized, you know, by the Haitians themselves, and they had to defeat first the Spaniards, then the French, no, sorry, then the English, sorry, and then the French, the Spaniards, I mean, they, they actually destroyed some like 35,000 Spanish troops 
and then they had to deal with Britain, the British troops, who, who Britain who tried to take Haiti away from France, and Britain lost some like a hundred thousand troops in that Haitian struggle, you know, which was learned historically only became to the awareness of the British public sometime around 19-something. I don't remember, but 19-something, even though this struggle took place, you know, um, just at the end of the French Revolution, the British public didn't know they lost that many soldiers in, in, um, in Haiti, you know. And then came France with, um, with Toussaint, not sorry, with Napoleon, with Napoleon Bonaparte and 60,000 troops again that they actually brought against Haiti and lost, you know. So Haiti found itself now becoming, you might say, the really first clearly independent state in this Western Hemisphere, you know. Well, what I find kind of interesting about that is that uh, Haiti getting its independence in 1801 didn't have any theoretical development that was related to workers' struggle, you know. It's, I mean, it's around 1848, you know, that, you know, um, that real theoretical work was, was being put together, you know, that tried to show workers as being, as leading the struggle for our, our workers' dominated world, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you even look at, at the works of Karl Marx, you know, yes. who did the most advanced, you know, the studies around that, you know, you know, that... Haiti didn't exist around that. Haiti was not, that was not existing no. during the time of Haiti, you know. So it just shows, I mean, it, it makes me feel, understand so much when I hear, you know, Trump is referring to Haiti and these shit all African countries. Yeah. You know, I noticed he didn't separate them. He just, he made sure he mentioned Haiti. And to me, like, it's almost as though Haiti represents a kind of a nightmare, you know, to the capitalistic world because it was the first effort to kind of make capitalism understand that, you know, the world's population led by that black experience in Haiti was something that would eventually become a reality of our world, you know. Mm -hmm. So that to me is a really important significance of Haiti, you know. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. How important is it to incorporate a uh, uh, class analysis mm -hmm. in anti-racism work? To start off with, uh, because migrant workers are racialized bodies, racialized people, I think that race plays a central role in the exploitation. If we're looking at the legacy of slavery and colonialism, mm -hmm. right? It's not a coincidence that we've chosen um, black and brown bodies mm -hmm. uh, to, to denigrate and dehumanize and to destroy here in the global north. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's usually the starting point that I have. Now, when we think about race and class and that intersection with gender, uh, it's important to understand how different people are positioned. And for instance, if we're not thinking about developing a working class consciousness uh, or, or with, with the intersection of race, uh, we're missing a lot of, of, of understanding what are the particular situations that migrant farm workers are facing in Canada. Now, the examples are this, well-meaning um, community groups, uh, see if they're ethno-racial organizations, may simply want to have a conversation for the, with the government to look at some small reforms without understanding this longer historical project that Louis is talking about. And this is not about engaging piecemeal reforms, right, or trying to uh, 
give more power to, to, to groups, middle class groups or upper middle class people to speak for workers or speak for the marginalized. It's about trying to create spaces where workers could develop themselves. And this is why when we're thinking about a working class racialized consciousness, um, why that's important spaces to develop as a resistance of a transformation and an understanding of what the working and living conditions are, not only under the contemporary period, but understanding what has led to this formation today through migration, through slavery, um, and through our legislation legislative systems that intentionally and and the impact of them, uh, impact of these laws, I should say, deny migrant workers the ability to have rights in Canada. But as Nandita Sharma points out, the existence of these programs um, through the Temporary Foreign Worker Program, which is the umbrella that brings not only farm workers or caregivers, but all different categories of migrant workers to Canada. Uh, Previously, it was known as a non-immigrant authorization program. And simultaneously, while Canada has, quote, colorblind immigration laws, where they opened up to the, to, the, to the world, but also simultaneously racialized, excluded people, one of the ways they did so was through the existence and the expansion of these guest worker programs, which was a non-immigrant employment authorization program. Nandita points out very clearly that migrant workers do not have access to uh, democratic participation, any form of decision-making about the governance uh, or participation of any form. So the first, by design, migrant workers cannot engage in electoral politics, all right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they can't, by themselves, look at the parliamentary system to change. Mm -hmm. First point about this. Mm -hmm. Second of all, the way that our parliamentary democracy system works for for racialized working class people, but the general working class, there's not real options on the table to address what's the agenda that were put forward, whether on international dimensions, when we're talking about the Caribbean or Africa or Asia and what principles of international solidarity look like, or basically creating the type of society that we want here. So the parliamentary system has is stacked against all of our interests, but also on top of that, uh, it is the electoral system doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So with respect to this question about the intersection, how, what the importance of class, it's about thinking about how race and class work to create this dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how do we create a form of understanding of weighing how we see ourselves, both in the contemporary period, to see that the, the democratic processes don't work, mm-hmm. but also to situate this. Now, when workers from Trinidad come... Um, it's about getting them to understand that, the, and, and many of them do already. I want to be clear. It's not that I'm going and they're telling them stuff they don't know. Mm-hmm. But they see, and they see themselves here, that these are the same people who came as slaves and indentured laborers mm-hmm. to work side by side under conditions where um, not too long ago, to come to Canada, you had to be named, mm-hmm. right? Which is the same process they did under slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, they looked at the hands of workers, the jaws, the cheekbones, to see if they could handle this type of work. <laughs> so the same type of f- components that they did to, to buy uh, slaves, you see some of those same fundamental ideas and beliefs that are used to, uh, to regulate, contain, and control migrant workers in Canada. Yeah, can I pick up from what you know, Chris just, just said there? Because when, when it comes to think of it, the very early contact with Europe and, <clears throat> and say this, this across the Middle Passage you know, from Europe, you know, it's very early contact. I mean, involved involve bringing into place modern capitalism, which actually then transformed the indigenous people who they first met and came into contact with, say in the Caribbean and, and Mexico, for example, was to transform them to workers, you know. 
Um, and then all of these, uh, in the, all of the slaves, which were all the, the enslavement of African, black Africans, to bring them, of course, in the Middle Passage again, was bringing them again to be workers. And I am of the, I am of the position, as I stated yesterday, that that is our primary identity, you know, as workers, which, which is to me a very important identity, really. When one looks at um, the millions of, of people of African descent living, say, down in South America, the millions in the United States and all in the Caribbean, including the indigenous people, there's a very large body of, if you want to call it, workers of color in this part of the hemisphere, you know. And I think that's, that's very crucial in terms of understanding the, the major role that we would play, would have to play and would play in making direct democracy as achieved in the 1917 Russian revolt be a reality of our lives in this western part of the world, this part of the world, you know. Um, so I, I think, you know, that um, it's a very positive identity if one kind of realizes, you know, that, um, as I say, you know, um, when, when you have to define something, you can't define something without its other being attached to it, you know. You know, each, con each contains its other in its own concept, you know. Workers contained capital in its own concept, you know. And mm -hmm. the question is, will capital continue dominating workers or would workers, because of that mutual kind of struggle with each other, dominate capital? And I think what we are experiencing right now is that workers are on the way to actually dominating capital and workers of color and Aboriginal workers are very crucial to that final dominance in which you could say direct democracy, you know, you know, would have to be our future and the future for all of the world to me, not just workers of color and indigenous workers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that is what excites me, I would say, <laughs> about this particular phase that we are now kind of dealing with of the 1919 strike in in Manitoba here, which has been part of other societies, you know, in the Western world, in that, I mean, I for myself personally just went to Trinidad and Tobago just about a couple of weeks ago and found that they were actually recognizing the 1919 strike, you know, in a sort of, um, in a, they were doing some kind of a theatrical work which brought forward the 1919 strike as part of that work, which I find so very interesting. Yeah. With this connection, you see what I mean, you know. <laughs> so you never know. I mean, you know, like right down in South America, maybe that same thing is being done, you know. Okay. And, and, and I should mention, Chris, even, the, even the, the, the East Asians who were brought here, you know, um, just after the end of slavery and after 1834, you know, um, the South Asians, in fact, you know, who were, who were brought across to this part of the world, they were also brought here as workers and they were confined to contracts which only came to an end in 1917. You know, the, the, the contracts, mm -hmm. I mean, no, sorry, 1917 has been the 100th anniversary of the contracts that were made with South Asian, South Asian workers, you know, who were brought to this Western part of the world 
after the end of slavery, you know. So I, I think, you know, that it's all tied up in terms, mm -hmm. in terms of us not being able to escape a worker's identity, you see what I mean, mm -hmm. which is a most important identity to have at this, this juncture of human development. Mm -hmm. you know? So just to follow mm -hmm. up, I think the limitations of the mm -hmm. way that we understand mm -hmm. the 1919 uh, resistance or revolution that was happening here in Winnipeg, I find that, you know, and um, the comrade, I was on a panel with a comrade from Mexico, from uh, UNAM, who spoke. And what was really important about his presentation was he contextualized it. He looked at what stuff that was going on in Barcelona, in Mexico City, in places all over the world. And I think that uh, the lens that many times it's approached is a national lens, not an international lens um, of understanding not just simply 1919, but the other historical dimensions that previously, whether it's the Haitian Revolution or post-periods. Um, so in the Caribbean, the 37 38, the revolts that happened throughout the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So all that plays an important understanding of what resistance is and what resistance looks like. Mm -hmm. um, that, that we have a very, very... Um, if we're not careful... Mm -hmm. that's how we also erase our resistance as, as racialized communities if we don't consider this larger global co com mm -hmm. concept. There just, is an element that from what uh, Chris has just said that I think you need to be borne attention to eh, is that uh, um, the so-called petty intelligentsia, you know, the role which that class can play, that, that class that actually m emerged very much at the time of the French Revolution. Because when you look at even the people who were controlling the French Revolution, like Robespierre, Robespierre was a lawyer, you know, the Marat, Marat was an engineer, Saint-Just, he was a journalist, you know, that was almost the, the beginning of the rise of the intelligentsia class, the petty intelligentsia class, you know, uh, which is very much part of our community right now, you know, it's so very important that members of the petty, petty intelligentsia realize that they have to be revolutionary petty intelligentsia and not be there to just kind of uh, reap the benefits of capital based on their, their, their education, their higher education, which, uh, I mean, I, I have observed in our community. I might say, oh, I'm talking about the, the black community, mm -hmm. you know, I find there's a lot of that really in term, in, instead of seeing um, higher education as instruments to be able to push forward the struggle, you know, um, you know, they, that that has to be really addressed, you know, because they have to be crucial in defining themselves as a revolutionary petty intelligentsia, and I think that's crucial. I mean, that's how I see Fidel Castro. That's yeah. how I see um, uh, this guy in, in Grenada, um, Maurice Bishop, Bishop, you know, mm -hmm. um, and many of the activists coming out of the Caribbean right now coming out of the universities, but not saying, I am just, my university experience is just to help me to acquire a sort of material wealth and be at a class that dominates, you know, the, the, the working class. I, I wonder if maybe you could just maybe enlighten us with some, some observations or, or examples that you've come across uh, and you know, what you've witnessed in the organizing you've done in your, in your respective communities that lead you to believe that, uh, you know, people of color, people in the mar migrant uh, realm can ultimately express uh, their own uh, uh, you know their power, uh, in spite of the some of these institutional barriers that prevail. So I uh, identify as an activist and as an organizer, but I think organizing is also a fallacy. It makes the idea, the concept that you're going to organize somebody. And that is not that creates a power relationship, and that's not necessarily what I do. Um, I'm learning. 
right, mm -hmm. from, from what the workers are telling us. Mm -hmm. We've engaged in, in long marches. Uh, we did a 12-hour march about seven or eight years ago. It was called the Pilgrimage to Freedom. Um, and it, uh, it was a 12-hour march by Caribbean, Trinidadian, Jamaican, um, Mexican uh, workers. Uh, it was organized and led by Thai and Filipino women. Uh, who are some of the baddest ass organizers ever. <laughs> and this was also based on workplace resistance. Uh, these group of, of Trini workers, of Filipino and Thai workers were organizing in their workplaces. We just happened to hear about these situations and we tried to show solidarity with them. But uh, so they were doing stuff on their own. We wanted to basically bring people together mm -hmm. and through that discussions, which came up these long marches, mm -hmm. right? And these other forms of actions, uh, the public actions that were taking places. So the learning that we're doing is from what's happening there. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I don't want to be, you know, sound, sound, you know, it's a romanticized process. It's very tough, right? There's a lot of things that we have to challenge each other about. Mm -hmm. um, employment insurance is one example. So migrant workers pay into un unemployment insurance, but they don't get access mm -hmm. to benefits. And mm -hmm. the, the, the conservatives have engaged in a practice of, of basically further eroding benefits for migrant workers. And the liberals have basically been silent on this issue. Mm -hmm. So in effect... Common sense tells us if you're not paying into the system, then you shouldn't pay. Mm -hmm. So the conversation has been, look, this is not the way the system is. Let's dream about this. Let's think that if you're able to get something, how do we actually build, make it stronger? How can we try to see to develop a system where workers, like our pension system, people can get um, in another country? We have something that with the Americans. An American works in Canada and goes home and can get um, employment insurance benefits from Canada. So how do we use employment insurance, for instance, as an expansive and inclusive model and an organizing model, model, right? So those are some of the conversations. The status. So we've come forward uh, for the last several decades, well, let's say 20 years now, uh, we have called for status upon arrival. And the first thing when people talk to us about that, they say that's real crazy. That's not going to happen. That's just mm -hmm. nonsense. Mm -hmm. But then we talk about the historical dimensions. When uh, white workers came to Canada... Uh, at the turn of the last century, they were given land, right? Mm -hmm. They were given land. They had the ability to, to settle as a community. It's only when we started bringing black workers, Jamaicans to start off, and then Trinis and, and other communities afterwards, is when we saw the immigration restrictions. Mm -hmm. So for us, it's about looking at history, just saying, and number two, the importance about taking away the power of bosses to use immigration laws to divide workers. So that's what the challenge what we've put forward to both the general community, but also to workers to think, well, wait a minute. Our workplace issues are also affected by the way that our government and our states contain and control. And they use our immigration laws to divide workers. So that's, I guess, some of the components about uh, what we've done, I guess, and what we've learned from the workers. Right? And what the workers have told us about the ways they resist and how we organize. And not every uh, organizing tactic we use takes an, an, an immediate political manifestation. So this upcoming um, next weekend, we're doing a community dinner in Leamington, Ontario, which has the largest concentration of migrant workers. Mm -hmm. And it's a Mother's Day dinner, but it's also the day to talk about other issues. Mm -hmm. So we use these type of spaces to build relationships, build trust, mm -hmm. and then to talk about some of the contemporary issues, some of the stuff we've done in the past, and get people in smaller groups to start thinking what we want the future to look like. Okay.
In fact, what I have, what I have sort of uh, understood, um, looking at it historically, is that a lot of the workers uprising have been, in fact, been very spontaneous, where the objective and the subjective, they come together, and you have this spontaneous, this spontaneous rising up, sometimes without workers in certain locations, even knowing that workers in other locations in their same country is aware that, you know, that they are also rising together, you know. And that I find is exceptionally valuable, you know, in that um, once this kind of spontaneity has happened, it is only as a result of the established forces now trying to deal with the spontaneity that we find ourselves now creating kind of a, like structures, you know, mm-hmm. you know, because we, we haven't been able to completely overthrowing, over, overthrowing the, 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 those, who can, the can, those who control, the, the, the agents of the plunderers, put it that way, yeah. you know. So we find ourselves now, our spontaneity now is now faced with having to say, all right, you know, um, what is the institutional structure that we have to put between ourselves and the plunders in order for us to still survive to make another spontaneous step forward, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the process that I think um, would have to unfold so the spontaneity reached a point of having full control, you know. Mm-hmm. So okay, yeah, mm-hmm. that's well, being a theoretical <laughs> context, but I I think it's valuable to have that kind of theoretical context, even as a point of inspiration and understanding. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I th- want to thank you both for uh, participating in this conversation. I think it's a nice way to wind up, wind up the conference. So, uh, Chris okay. Ramsarup of the uh, Justice for Migrant Workers Toronto and uh, Louis Eiffel, a mm-hmm. former uh, program cool. coordinator for the Workers of Colour Support Network. Thank, thank you, you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. Aviomi Azikiwe is the editor of Pan-African Newswire, an electronic press agency that was founded in 1998. He's worked for decades in solidarity with the liberation movements and progressive governments on the African continent and the Caribbean. He's also a frequent contributor to Global Research. Thanks, thank you very much for agreeing to be on our show, Abiyomi. Well, thanks for the invitation again. Now, we typically hear about how the labor movement is geared toward advocating for workers in solidarity against exploitive bosses. Uh, but looking at the history of industrial development in the Northeast United States, particularly your city of Detroit, we see schisms developing between and among workers along racial lines. Could you help us understand how and why this split labor force and, and racial tensions among the workers in this region came about? It's an age-old problem. A lot of it had to do with the efforts on the part of the uh, industrial bosses to uh, divide uh, the working class, uh, white workers themselves, uh, during the uh, turn of the 19th and 20th, 20th century, were also uh, migrating into major urban areas. Uh, they were also uh, being recruited by mining companies uh, throughout the country. And uh, they were, of course, fighting uh, for decent wages and improved working conditions. Uh, They themselves were super exploited, uh, working, toiling under conditions uh, which were tantamount uh, to enslavement. Uh, So when they began uh, to uh, fight uh, for better uh, conditions, uh, the bosses uh, tried to prevent them from organizing, uh, to crush their demands, uh, even at the point of driving people uh, back into the mines, back into the factories, 
at gunpoint. When that didn't work, uh, many of them were laid off. Uh, so at the same time, they used uh, African-Americans who were desperate for work, uh, many of whom had uh, migrated from the rural, uh, former slave-owning southern uh, region uh, to uh, the more urbanized and industrial centers, and used uh, African-Americans as strike breakers. Of course, uh, this uh, was designed to fuel tension uh, between white and African-American workers, and as a result of that, bringing about this type of animosity. Of course, uh, there was legalized residential segregation, uh, both uh, legalized uh, segregation and de facto segregation uh, in the educational sector and even in the service sector as, as it relates to public accommodations. So this is a strategy uh, that was used uh, quite effectively uh, by the ruling class in the United States uh, for many years. Of course, uh, if you look at the history of the labor movement, uh, the, for example, the Knights of Labor, uh, which was a powerful labor organization uh, beginning in the 19th century, uh, did not necessarily uh, organize uh, black workers. If they did, they were in separate uh, segregated unions. The same held true for the American uh, Federation of Labor as well. Uh, there were exceptions uh, to uh, these uh, racially uh, polarized organizing efforts. Uh, for example, the uh, Siemens Union and other unions uh, were more um, uh, appreciative and uh, more uh, welcoming uh, to African Americans. Then uh, in uh, 1934, and even a, a few years prior to that, there was a wave of strikes and labor unrest in the United States during the Great Depression. And the Committee on Industrial Organizations, which became the uh, Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, came into being with a lot of uh, left-wing influence, and they committed uh, themselves at the time uh, to organizing uh, workers of all races. And, of course, this was a major affront uh, to the ruling interest in the United States. Of course, after World War II and uh, the decommissioning of uh, millions of uh, people inside the United States from the military services, uh, they became uh, another crisis of uh, jobs in the United States, and uh, we saw uh, the reimposition of a racialized uh, labor part policy on the part of the government, uh, the whole McCarthy era, uh, which uh, demonized uh, the struggle for civil rights, uh, for labor rights, and of course this split labor market, which the U.S. capitalist system was built on, <clears throat> was reimposed uh, during the post-World War II period. Well, what was the... Uh... I'm, I'm speaking in thinking of the, uh, the co-optation of, of leaders within the African-American community. How did they uh, succeed in managing to, you know, be people who were, you know, kind of promoting, uh, continuing to promote capitalism, but with, uh, you know, more uh, consideration for, for the racially oppressed people? Yes, well, here in Detroit in particular, uh, Henry Ford, uh, the first, uh, was... Uh, the initial uh, capitalist to go into the South and recruit uh, African-American uh, sharecroppers and uh, agricultural workers uh, to come uh, to Detroit to work in his uh, factories uh, for $5 a day, which was um, about a 1,000% increase over the normal wages that people work for, sometimes as less, lower as 50 cents a day uh, in areas of the South. Uh, this was, of course, uh, designed as well to foster anti-union attitudes. Uh, Ford 
and other industrialists uh, cultivated uh, alliances with African-American church leaders and other uh, community leaders uh, that uh, was uh, based upon the recruitment of African-American workers uh, through the churches into the uh, factories uh, with the understanding that they would not uh, engage in labor organizing activity. Of course, this broke down uh, over a period of time after World War I, uh, intensifying during the 1930s, and of course in 1941, uh, the UAW was finally recognized uh, by uh, the auto um, magnets uh, here in the city of Detroit, with the assistance of people like Paul Robeson, for example, who came into Detroit in 1941 to help with the uh, organizing drive. Now, at the same time, uh, after World War II, a lot of the uh, leftist members of the Communist Party and Socialist parties, uh, radicals of different and varying stripes, were purged uh, from the leadership and any effective participation in the UAW, uh, the AFL-CIO, and other unions. Of course, this weakened the capacity of labor uh, to fight against the intensification of uh, labor exploitation that occurred after World War uh, II. And then, of course, black workers fought back against that through the Civil Rights Movement. And here in Detroit, uh, through the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement and the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, uh, which was an all-black uh, worker insurgency movement that developed after the Detroit Rebellion of 1967, uh, they both uh, attacked the bosses uh, that were uh, exploiting uh, African-American workers uh, and also against the uh, racism within the UAW, which uh, had a partnership, the leadership, uh, with uh, the bosses uh, to keep uh, both the African-American uh, workers down as well as to uh, bring about some type of, quote, labor peace, uh, unquote. So, uh, that, that is what developed uh, during the 1960s and 1970s. And, of course, in the mid-1970s, there was a whole restructuring of the world economic system. And auto was central in that whole process, uh, where many plants uh, were closed, uh, wages were effectively lowered, and, of course, this had an impact on the uh, housing, uh, education, and uh, environmental quality of uh, cities like Detroit and uh, cities throughout the Midwest. You've mentioned in the past that abandoning capitalism and imperialism is a necessary prerequisite for gains for your racially oppressed peoples. How do you see such a circumstance coming about? What would it look like in practical terms? Yes, there has to be an emphasis on organizing low-wage workers uh, who constitute, uh, I believe, uh, the majority uh, within the labor force inside the United States at this time. Uh, since the uh, Great Recession of uh, a little over a decade ago, the so-called recovery uh, since 2009 has largely been based upon the lowering of wages and the expansion of low-wage labor. And in response to that, uh, you have uh, movements uh, right now in cities like Detroit and Chicago and Memphis that are demanding $15 an hour minimum wage with the union in order to fight back against the corporations. Corporations, for example, like McDonald's, uh, Target, Walmart, who uh, have expanded their workforce uh, or did expand their workforce and at the same time uh, kept wages low, kept benefits low. Uh, so I think this is a major challenge right now uh, to 
the current phase of monopoly capitalism, and that is the further exploitation of workers. But we see a crisis developing, and that strategy as well, as far as the ruling class is concerned, because we see many of the service outlets, uh, retail stores, for example, have closed thousands upon thousands of stores uh, just over the last uh, three years, and that process is going to continue. Uh, more jobs are going to be wiped out uh, through electronic uh, purchasing and also uh, through uh, online shopping. So all of these uh, problems um, do not, well, they portend uh, the inevitable uh, collapse of the capitalist system because whatever strategy they come up with, uh, it's still not crisis-free. Uh, there's still the contradictions still arise uh, between labor and capital. I want to thank you once again for your insights, Abiyomi. Thank you. We've been speaking with Abiyomi Azikiwe. He's the editor of Pan-African Newswire and a frequent contributor to global research. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.